Welcome back to another Dispatch podcast. I am joined as always by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, David French, and that makes me Sarah Isger. We're going to continue our conversation from last week, the events around January 6th, but also what has happened since then, what we've learned, what the House and Senate plan to do about it, the censure of the president, the impeachment of the president, the removal of the president. And then, of course, we'll talk about what social media companies have also done in the week since January 6th. Let's dive right in. I think the biggest story today, at least, is the break within the Republican caucus You have Liz Cheney coming out to say she will be voting for impeachment. She is the number three Republican in the House of Representatives. Uh, We'll call that the the Trumpless caucus. And then you have uh, McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy is the number one Republican in the House of Representatives, saying he will not vote for impeachment, coming out pretty strongly against it, though unwilling to whip the vote, as in convince members not to vote for impeachment. Uh, and he, Axios used this term, and so I'm going to borrow it, the fade away caucus, where they just think Trump will go away. I thought that uh, a unnamed Republican put it very well when they said Republicans have been waiting for Trump to, quote, fade away and do himself in since he came down that escalator in 2016. They will be waiting a very long time if that keeps happening. Uh, Steve, I know you have been mulling this around in your mind grapes of, of late. I have been, and I've even been doing some reporting, um, which is, it's fun to get back in, in the reporting game. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think if you want to pull back the picture or pull back the camera a little bit and, and try to see kind of the bigger picture, um, focusing here on the, the intra Republican party dynamics, um, I think for what it's worth, I think it's very clear that the president has, um, ought to be impeached and ought to be removed. I think it should be expedited if possible. Uh, so I'm I'm coming to it from that point of view. Uh, I thought Liz Cheney's statement yesterday was very strong. Uh, she ended it by saying there has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. Basically, the most stinging indictment you can possibly imagine. And as Jonathan Martin of the New York Times pointed out, something that puts her colleagues on the spot to a certain extent because it, it, it keeps them from being able to avert their eyes. That is a strong and direct accusation and something that I think many of them will have to address if they, particularly the people who vote, who vote not to impeach. She put out a statement yesterday, and I think it changed the dynamic in the, in the intra-Republican party debate um, to some extent. Um, Kevin McCarthy had basically been um, leading from behind, uh, to steal a phrase from the Obama era, on all of this stuff. He came out on November 5th, declared, uh, echoing the president, that the election had been stolen and uh, has been basically making that case ever since. He uh, quietly, after refusing on a, a call with House Republican members on January 1st, quietly uh, organized with the, the the Republicans who were going to object to uh, seating the electors, and uh, even gave advice to 
other Republicans that this would be an easy vote. Um, and then voted even after the insurrection at the Capitol last Wednesday, voted in favor of objecting to Pennsylvania's votes. So it, it, there, it is no surprise at all that Kevin McCarthy is a no for impeachment. I, I find it ironic that his arguments uh, in the last 48 hours have emphasized unity in the country and the need to avoid being divisive. This from somebody who knowingly, we should, we should point out, knowingly misled the country for two months about who won the, the election. McCarthy had in conversations with Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report and NBC News said that he knew Donald Trump lost. There wasn't really a question in his mind uh, whether Donald Trump won or lost, and he made the arguments anyway, um, about, about as, as bad an example of, of leadership as you can imagine. I think the Cheney I think the Cheney statement at least gives pause to Republicans who are going to, for procedural reasons or others, uh, vote no on impeachment. I'm not sure at the end of the day that it swings a lot of people or brings a ton of people over. The open question is Mitch McConnell and what does Mitch McConnell do? There are reports today that he's open to voting to convict. The question is whether he brings the Senate back. Um, Early indications are that he will not, um, but there's a lot we don't know. Steve. A quick follow-up on the politics of this, because Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney are in very different places in their career. Uh, I have seen some people say that this is a political move by Liz Cheney to up her chances of being speaker the next time around. Uh, On the flip side, I've seen it that uh, Mitch McConnell would vote for impeachment because this is his final legacy in the U.S. Senate and so he wants to be an institutionalist to help preserve, you know, the Senate. Yeah, I mean, look, especially if you're thinking about the last several years, you're it's probably wise to make a bet on cynicism. So I understand why people will would would um, come to those conclusions and immediately assume political motives uh, are behind this. In the case of Liz Cheney, I think the, the on its face, the, the claim is absurd. Wyoming voted 69 to 26 in favor of Donald Trump. It's a very strongly Trumpy state. Uh, the, the current chairman of the Wyoming Republican Party said that Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party even after the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, as I said, she voted uh, opposite of 138 of her colleagues um, who voted to object to Pennsylvania's electors. So it would be a strange way to climb to the top of power in a House Republican conference that disagrees with what she's doing. So it doesn't make much, much sense. Jonah, you and Steve got into a, uh, what others I think wanted to build up into a full-on Twitter spat. (laughs) In the conversation of censure versus impeachment, explain how you feel about the censure movement. Yes. So first of all, I think people thought it was going to turn into a spat because he began by condescendingly referring to me as older and wiser. And, uh, and I responded calling him. A I meant it. I meant so, it. <laughs> uh, I think Steve and I are, I mean, this shouldn't come as a shock to many listeners, but given how we put out an editorial, the only editorial we've basically ever run calling for impeachment, 
that Steve and I are actually on the same page about how impeachment is prefer is 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 the better option. And I actually said so in my initial tweet, which I think Steve, you know, discuss uh, his reading comprehension skills are are not what we would want them to be. Missed that point in it, but uh, <laughs> I think that the uh, my point was that, and this is a point I was making in my little set to with Hugh Hewitt yesterday, is that I would credit people who said they were against impeachment for these prudential reasons or the, these constitutional claims. And even though I disagree with those, those arguments, but I think people can sincerely hold them. They are not in, on their face unreasonable, some of these things. Plus, there are certain questions about, you know, concerns about what if Trump is, is acquitted again and claims vindication. I think that's a real concern. I have answers to it. My point is, if your argument is, is that impeachment is the bad idea because there's just not enough time or, or, or for these other, you know, uh, technical considerations, it would be perfectly reasonable to say, and therefore we are pushing for censure of this guy, right? If the argument is, is that impeachment isn't wrong because if you're not saying that Trump doesn't deserve to be impeached, then you're conceding that Trump did something wrong, then say so. Be forthright about it. This is my huge complaint. You have the entire sort of snowflake whiner caucus of Republicans out there saying how unfair it is to be tarred with the acts of a few bad apples. Um, this has become an, a new major victimization narrative on the right. And I have nothing but sympathy for people who feel un, unfairly associated with the actions of a few bad apples. You know how you clarify that you're not part of them? By condemning them. And um, if the GOP were sincere about this, that's what they would do. I think it would be a smart political move. Uh, we saw this happen with the Bill Clinton impeachment. It was seen that the hope for censure was a way to siphon off enthusiasm for the more draconian impeachment move. And my point was, was not that I prefer censure, but that if the Republicans were serious about actually condemning this, they would take efforts to condemn it and say, OK, we've done enough. We don't need to impeach. But they really weren't doing that, at least when Steve and I got into it. But Steve, I took your point to be actually a little bit more antagonistic to Jonah than Jonah's reading into it, which is well, that you, you feel have those hopes. Sarah, you are <laughs> inciting. This is inciting. You're meeting the Brandenburg standard. Right Show here. strength, Steve. It's, it's inciting. It may not be exciting, but it's inciting. <laughs> you have to fight. Uh, Steve, I took your side of the argument to be that you actually are against any movement towards censure because you think it would undermine the sort of black and white choice that faces Republicans on impeachment, that it gives like sort of the, the weasel word out um, for those who are like, well, I'm not, I don't want to be politically brave. Uh, so you are actually against censure, not that you think it's less good than impeachment. Yeah, I am against censure. And I think the, the, the problem, it's, it's really more a matter of sequencing. Um, the problem is if you give people the censure option early, it gives them safe harbor from having to do the, the more difficult and I think the correct thing, which is to vote to impeach. If, if as, as somebody I know and admire, um, for whom my admiration knows no ends, wrote in a column recently that might be up on our website today, if you can't impeach the president for this, what is impeachment for? So I don't think they should have an alternative. Um, censure strike, it, it, it would be a meaningless vote that allows them to 
sort of half oppose the president and condemn what he's done without having to to think about the consequences of their vote. And if there's any indication, go ahead. I just want to be clear about one thing. I wasn't saying that we're getting is and ought confused here. I was making an analytical point. Yes. I was just simply saying if the Republicans were sincere about all of this, they would make those kinds of efforts Jonah, to say that, and that would be a reasonable thing to do. I wasn't, I wasn't advocating for it. <laughs> you guys want to be political consultants. I don't want to be a political <laughs> consultant. I was trying to help you make the distinction between descriptive and, and normative and just uh-huh. clarify that for people who might have been confused. But if there's if there's uh, if we needed any indication that 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 this is that this would be a Weasley option, and to be clear, I think Jonah is right about the sequencing. If you do impeachment first and it fails, uh, you could do censure just to get them on the record. But uh, to put impeachment first, I think would be a huge mistake, and we know that it is. I think Sarah used the word Weasley. Um, to describe it. We know that it an is an insult weaselly, to weasels, by the way, an insult to weasels. If after uh, in the, the moments after Liz Cheney put out her statement saying that she was going to vote to impeach an aide to Kevin McCarthy told a reporter for Fox News who then tweeted, Kevin McCarthy is seriously considering uh, bringing up a censure resolution, uh, which is basically an announcement of the fact that he wants to do something totally toothless. And create so David, that safe harbor. In criminal law, in a lot of jurisdictions, you are not allowed to, uh, you know, include lesser included offenses for this exact reason, because juries will just split the baby and right. uh, decide that basically reasonable doubt loses some meaning if it's like, well, we don't want to convict him of murder, but we're also not totally sure he's innocent, so we'll just go with manslaughter. Uh, that that has now become pretty disfavored in a lot of jurisdictions. This seems like a a, a impeachment version of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I here's my view. I my view is you you drive towards impeachment. You do not include any sort of option for a lesser included event, uh, offense. If impeachment fails, you're still going to be doing a um, thorough investigation of this event. And if impe- and when I say impeachment fails, I don't think impeachment will fail. He'll, he'll be impeached today in all likelihood. I mean, conviction fails. Now, what we also have to realize is we're going to be learning a heck of a lot more about these events in the coming days and weeks and months. So my view is you drive for impeachment. You have a trial as we're learning more about this. And then if conviction fails, then... And there's evidence, the evidence is, uh, emerges of the full magnitude of the wrongdoing here. I think there's another measure you take short of censure. I mean, that's greater than censure. And that is you pass a law under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that bars Trump from future office. That's the next fallback in my mind uh, if impeachment and conviction fails. I think censure is sort of like if someone is uh, held up a bank. And um, they're then uh, they plead down to disturbing the peace. <laughs> yeah, or like uh, trespassing or something. Or trespassing. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there's a long way to go before you even consider censure, given the magnitude of what we're dealing with. Uh, David, following up, how does the Republican Party continue as a single party with, I've said this before, with Mitt Romney, and Josh Hawley, 
with now Liz Cheney and Kevin McCarthy. Are are we weeks away from having two different parties? Is this somehow going to mend itself in a way that I don't see? Yeah, you you know you raise a really good a, a really good question. I mean, it's not you know it's not just the leadership. It's it's down to the the freshman incoming freshman members. I mean, you've you've got you know uh, Marjorie Taylor Green, and you've got uh, the the new representative is it Nancy Mace um, that they have already. Um, gotten into a pretty furious fight. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, can I, can I just be super on brand dispatch for a moment and yes. say, um, I'm gonna have to press pause on that analysis for this reason. Um, I think a lot more is gonna come out. I, 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 there's a, there's a lot we're gonna learn, and this isn't over. That's, that's another thing to keep in mind. I hope it's over, but the odds are that it's not over because we're seeing uh, a lot of open chatter about um, everything from threats to murder journalists and members of Congress to armed protests at every state capital in the U.S. And there's a chance that when all this shakes out, what you're going to end up with are some people who are going to very conveniently be able to say, well, if I knew that after this is all over, if I'd known that, kind of in the way that sort of like the diehard Nixon supporter after, you know, a few years after 1974 was kind of hard to find. And I think that's one of the ways that that political parties sort of paper over and band-aid over their differences is it's sort of, well, I mean, I didn't have all the facts. And, and so I think that that's a possibility, although it's far from a certainty. Speaking of which, I wrote a a short piece, really, frankly, just for my own like feelings on Friday night. Uh, but then I, we published it in the dispatch. Very thankful to Steve for that, even though Steve disagreed with it. So I want to explain it, although I would say that similar to Jonah, it was more of a analytical and less of an ought. But nevertheless, I do now want your ought feelings. <laughs> uh, and that is that Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell could sort of strike a deal, votes for pardon, basically, that you could ensure conviction in the Senate and give those uh, 15 or so Republicans you need left, maybe it's less now, maybe it's more like 10 Republican senators uh, that you need to convince to come over now to get to the magic 66 number, that it would help provide them cover to say that they're getting something for the deal and what they could get is a pardon for Donald Trump. And uh, Steve, you feel, I think, pretty strongly that Donald Trump shouldn't be pardoned. I just think there's a, a good reason for the country that we don't want to spend the next several years uh, investigating, prosecuting, et cetera, Donald Trump. On the other hand, I very much understand, as David mentioned, 1974, that this is very different than 1974, where Nixon took responsibility, resigned, and said he was putting the country first, and then Gerald Ford pardoned him. So with all of that, I am curious for your thoughts. Yeah, there's been zero contrition from President Trump. None. Zero. He During, during the assault on the Capitol, he was calling senators and representatives and trying to get them to block the peaceful transfer of power. Rudy Giuliani, the president's 
lawyer obviously working in coordination with the president at 7 p.m. as Congress was set to reconvene to continue the process was calling senators, trying to get them to block the process. And in a, in a statement that the president made yesterday at the White House, he continued to to claim that this was that he was the victim in all all of this. So he's shown no contrition. He he does not deserve the benefit of the doubt. He certainly doesn't deserve to be pardoned. And I think there are likely to be real and serious legal questions about the things that that he's done. Um, I think you made the, the very best case for a bad argument. Um, the, <laughs> you, you know, your piece was very smart and judicious and I think wise, but I, it, I don't think it will have the intended effect. I don't think uh, that kind of a deal from Joe Biden would bring temperatures down because it would seem outrageous to so many people who voted for Joe Biden and plenty of Republicans who oppose what the president has done as well. So I don't think it would ultimately solve the problem. And finally, I don't want to make it easier for Republicans to to do the right thing. I want to make it harder. They should be on record on this because it really matters. Harder to do the wrong thing, you mean? Yes. I want to put Republicans on the spot. I want them on the record. If they won't support impeachment and removal, I think we should all know that. And I don't want to give them safe harbor. Jenna, what about the argument that uh, impeaching Donald Trump, removing Donald Trump, uh, or even just preventing him from running for office again in 2024 is the wrong way to do this? That what needs to happen is that voters need to reject Donald Trump. That's the only way you kill Trumpism, that otherwise you're martyring him. I saw someone say you're making him uh, Jesus Christ, that this is an undemocratic way to do it. Um, why, why isn't that the better option? Um, well, first of all, I, I do not want to start eating out of David French's food bowl, but if you turn, <laughs> if you think you're turning him into Jesus Christ, uh, you, you really need to hit the books a little bit harder. Um, uh, so, um, Look, I think there's. A, I had a. I did the whole Remnant podcast. This the first one this week uh, with Keith Whittington, who's a professor of law at at Princeton, and his expertise is on impeachment stuff. He wrote his dissertation on it, and um, and then I had a conversation with Yasha Monk, which is coming out later, where we talked about this. And it seems to me the only arguments against impeachment are purely prudential arguments. Like there is no. Um, I personally, I'll let you lawyer types duke it out, but I personally think the constitutional arguments against it are kind of dumb. Um, uh, but the, the principled arguments against it, I think are just non-starters. So it's a, it's a question. What does it look like if the, if Trump is acquitted and he claims vindication, right? Is that a good thing or a bad thing for the country? Is that worse? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. My suspicion is like, as, and as you guys were talking about on the advisory opinions podcast, the, the senators who voted against the Belknap, uh, impeachment or conviction, um, a big John, chunk I of I just want to save you a lot of emails. Yeah. You're going to get about a hundred emails yeah, now. 
uh, it, Belknap. The K is Belknap, silent, sorry. it turns out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we, got I just, more, I, we got more yeah. angry email over the mispronunciation <laughs> of Belknap than almost anything else in advisory opinions history. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Please continue. So, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> can we get into a fight of whether it's gerrymandering or gerrymandering? Um, but so uh, um, the senators, you know, they took a weaselly way out and they said, hey, look, we actually can't impeach somebody after um, they've left office. And as with, fascinatingly me, this is not something I knew. According to Keith Whittington, a bunch of state constitutions, including Virginia's from the founding era, only allowed impeachments after you left office. You couldn't impeach while in office, which suggests to me that in the founding era, the original understanding of impeachment included the ability to do it after you left office. But um, regardless, uh, I think that the, I've lost my train of thought here now because of this whole Belknap scandal. Um, uh, (laughs) I um, apologize. But look, I, I think those are prudential questions, but we can't possibly know the answer to it. And so my, my view is if you're faced with a choice of doing what is transparently the right thing or transparently, which could go wrong or transparently the wrong thing, which weirdly could go right in some unproven, <laughs> unprovable way, opt for trying to do the right thing. And that would be impeaching the guy and removing him and barring him for public office. And if it turns out, oh, that's the point I want to make. My hunch is that a bunch of senators will actually vote to acquit but their public statements will be, we should, much like in the Belknap thing, that we shouldn't be doing this because he's already left office. Obviously, he's guilty. It'll be a variation of the Lamar Alexander thing. And that's a verdict of history, too. And that's a better verdict than not impeaching him at all. David, do you have thoughts on the sort of democratic aspect that it would be better for the country if voters rejected Donald Trump in the primaries or in the general for 2024 than preventing him from facing voters again? I think he's one of the most destructive individuals in the entire United States of America. I think that he has become the spiritual and in some ways the operational leader of an actual violent insurrection. And I think he needs to be so thoroughly defeated in the here and now that there is no possibility of an, a later for him. Um, I think that what we have right now is, and, and we, what we have to do, let me back up a little bit. I wrote about this at length, and I'd, I'd encourage you guys to go to thedispatch.com and, and check it out. We cannot look at what happened on January 6th as some sort of one-off accidental a spontaneous riot that nobody could have really foreseen and nobody really intended. And this is just the emotions of people got the better of them. What you've seen instead is a propaganda fueled violent insurrectionary attack. That is not the only insurrectionary act. So we have had not just the relentless lies from the president of the United States. We have had relentless efforts to physically intimidate public officials, Democratic and Republican, who have followed the law and attempted to certify this election. And then you have potentially planned events in the future. What do we know about how to deal with insurrections? One of the things we know is to get rid of the leader of the insurrection. Um, That's one of the reasons why I, even though I'm fully aware of the problems with the slippery slope problems with social media bans, and I have been against them Uh, This is a situation where he needed his lines of communication to this mass of followers needed to be cut off. That is a elementary element. I mean, this is a basic element of this. 
In addition, his narrative of victory has to be completely discredited in the short term, not three years from now, not four years from now. His narrative of being the heroic victor against overwhelming odds has to be completely discredited. So he has to be deplatformed, he has to be defeated, and he has to be discredited. And the other thing you cannot do under any circumstances is allow the mob to dictate whether or not you do the right thing. I mean, this is something that we're seeing on Fox and elsewhere. If you think it's bad now, imagine if you impeach him. No, we don't apply that. We don't apply that in our actions against like insurrectionary um, movements overseas. We don't do that at all. We rightly say, no, you don't give in to the threats of violence. You don't give in. The threats of violence, in fact, they motivate you to apply the law more. So I think, I think what you do here is you defeat Trump immediately and decisively, and then also his primary propaganda enablers. The force of law should be deployed against them vigorously. So we know, for example, on the actual rioters, the DOJ is looking at these, is looking at, you know, charges of sedition and conspiracy. These are major charges, and that's all appropriate. But also civil law. I welcome the Dominion, the Dominion filing a $1.3 billion lawsuit against Sidney Powell. I encourage them to keep filing these cases. Um, I'm a free speech attorney, but defamation law is in is been a part of American law since the founding of the Republic, and it was never intended, defamation was never intended to be part of the freedom of speech encompassed by the First Amendment. So hit them hard. Um, there has to be a separation of these propaganda, pro, the propaganda arm of the insurrection and the actual insurrectionaries from everyone else to give everyone else an opportunity to breathe and come to their senses. David, can I challenge your premise on that? I can imagine, uh, sure. I can imagine people listening and saying, look, I think Trump was bad. I think he acted poorly. Of course, he shouldn't have lied about the election, but he's not really like the leader of an insurrection overseas in Iraq or somewhere else. I mean, he's not, as far as we know, uh, he's not giving, wasn't actively giving directions to um, the folks who assaulted the, the Capitol. He certainly didn't have any command and control, again, as far as we know, uh, of of his putative forces. Um, isn't that, aren't you taking it a step too far? Well, I, I would not say that he was the paramilitary leader of the forces, for sure, but he certainly was responsible for assembling, had he not endorsed that event repeatedly on January 6th and urged people to come, that event would have been a shadow of itself. It would have been, you would not have had the numbers there. So he was responsible in many ways for inspiring the size of the gathering itself and did nothing to tamp down did nothing, and in fact, did the opposite. He and he he did nothing to tamp down the energy surrounding the event. He hyped the energy surrounding the event. And one of the things that we cannot do, what we must not do, is merely categorize what he's done post election as as lying. Um, he has used, he has engaged, the, and to me, there there is now very strong evidence that he's engaged in actual uh, criminal acts to try to overturn this election, that he has been personally involved in criminal acts to overturn this election. If you uh, re listen to the transcript of the, uh, read the transcript of the call or listen to the call with Raffensperger, 
I mean, those there are federal conspiracy to violate civil rights implications throughout that call, throughout that call. Uh, we now know he had another call with Georgia election officials where he was attempting to coerce them. There's case law here that is applicable. So again, we're not talking about a guy who just merely tweeted lies. We're talking about a guy who engaged in intentional acts uh, to conspire. There's strong evidence that this that implicate com- conspiracy statutes that he whipped up the crowd that made it orders of magnitude more dangerous intentionally. He intentionally helped facilitate the creation of the crowd. What else do you want me to say? I've not accused him of leading the charge physically. You know, he had, there were paramilitary groups that did that. But creating the crowd, yeah. Fueling the crowd with fury, yeah. I would just point out to, to bolster your, your first point, the, the rally was named for uh, using Donald Trump's language, Stop the Steal. Right. I mean, that was part of it. And, Actually, I think and, it was called Save America, this one. I thought it was this, Stop the Steal, too. But yeah, the, gr- I should say the groups who helped organize were named and taken from uh, language that Donald Trump used. There was another, you know, Trump had a tweet in December urging people to come to the Capitol on January 6th and promised that it will be wild. And another one of the, the groups that organized used the, the, the term wild, I mean, playing directly off the president's language. And people who were interviewed who were part of the assault on the Capitol said they were here because the president asked them to be at the Capitol. So can I focus? I, 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 wanna, I don't necessarily disagree with David. I mean, I, I think the, the distinction between Trump more as Mullah Omar than as bin Laden, you know, he's less, he, he created right. the, the permission structure rhetorically and otherwise for it, I think, I think is right. But this, I think you're wrong to a certain extent to say we shouldn't focus on the lying because this is an analogy I used the other day. Um, if someone takes, uh, uses Photoshop or deep fake video stuff and actually convinces me that my daughter is being held captive in some chamber where they're running out of oxygen, some horror movie sort of scenario, and says, if you don't go kill so-and-so in the next hour, um, she's going to be dead. Now, whatever, whatever jury makes of me for going off and killing so-and-so, because to be honest, I probably would. Um, and, uh, um, the jury would be much angrier at the person who convinced me of the lie, right? If actually my daughter wasn't buried somewhere, wasn't in any danger. She was just out incommunicado because she was at the movies with her friends or something. Um, that lie is, it isn't just bad. It's pre, it, it is, it is, it is mandating violence in a certain way. If I actually believe that, I mean, this is something that Sarah was pointing out a while ago, right? Which was that if they were actually successful in, in doing this, that would set the preconditions for civil war, yeah. right? If the, the Trump people actually stole the election the way they were trying to, there would be massive violence in the streets. And while I don't condone violence in the streets, I kind of understand it, right? Because it would be truly first order, you know, even Tucker Carlson says, if this were true, it'd be the greatest crime in, greatest crime in American history. So it would be the end um, of self-government. Yeah. I mean, it would just, it would be cats and dogs living together in total anarchy and lots of, there'd be blood in the streets. To be clear, Jenna, I'm not saying don't focus on the lies. I'm saying the lies plus, like if you say he lied, you're not 
getting the whole picture. <laughs> it was more. Right. No, no, no. I, I, I agree with that. But my point is, is that is just that um, there is a really ridiculous argument out there. And because it's ridiculous, as you would expect, Matt Gates is one of its foremost uh, uh, advocates, which is that it is disrespectful to people who push the lie to say that they're liars. And that it's disrespectful to the 75 million voters, all that nonsense argument, to talk about this as insurrection because that is offensive to them. And I get that there are people who sincerely believe the lie, but that makes it all the more important to point out how this lie actually created this whole chain of events and it was premeditated. And that is the incitement to me. The fundamental incitement isn't show strength or any of that kind of stuff. It isn't even come to Washington. It's wild. It's, um, you know, the Statue of Liberty is buried in a, in a tank where the oxygen is running out. And if you don't go hang Mike Pence, yeah, right, uh, then we're going to lose democracy and this puppet from China is going to take over. And even if the crowd wasn't violent, it still would have been impeachable because what they were trying to do, as Ali Alexander said, openly said, he says, look, the point wasn't like violence. The point was, we wanted to have this, his words, this huge mob outside of Congress that would intimidate Congress and Mike Pence into going along with that. So his point is, we just wanted a giant crowd to scare them into committing one of the gravest constitutional crimes you can imagine. Yeah. But we didn't actually want them to beat a cop to death with a fire extinguisher. This I is actually kind of believe that. Yeah, this is a little bit my point about Cruz and Hawley. I don't need to debate whether they uh, helped build that crowd, encourage that crowd to come to the Capitol, whether the violence is in any way laid at their feet, because their stated objective was bad enough. Right. Their stated objective was to give the election to Joe Biden without evidence. Ted Cruz is like, had an, sorry, <laughs> uh, indeed. Breaking news. Uh, Ted Cruz had a little asterisk next to his because he wanted a commission to look into it. His argument was that there's these millions of people who are, you know, convinced of the lie. And the only thing we can do now is give in to them and, and sort of help them look into this. But it's all kind of the same. I think that nuance was lost on most people. And Ted and Josh, more than maybe anyone else in the Senate, with a slight exception for Mike Lee, are some of the best lawyers we have in the country. They can read a <laughs> Supreme Court opinion. They can read briefs. They know, you know when a hearing has been held, when a motion to dismiss uh, is not on the merits versus when it is. So you know, one of the most frustrating things I've seen now is this argument that, well, the courts never engaged with the Trump campaign. They just found these technicalities because they didn't want to have this mess on their hands. So they abdicated their responsibility. It's just not true. It's not like, oh, well, they have a point here. Like, nope, nope. Right. It's, it's not true at all. It's based on right. nothing. Yeah. Uh, and there's case after case after case where the courts held hearings, asked the Trump campaign to bring their evidence that, you know, and they didn't. You know, in the one case where the Trump campaign presented uh, all these affidavits, they then withdrew the ones, this was in Arizona, where they found provably that the uh, affiant had lied under penalty of perjury. 
And so the judge said, so the remaining affidavits are just the ones that you couldn't prove were lies? And the Trump campaign was like, yes. I mean, that's <laughs> like that's a great example of a case where the Trump campaign absolutely got to present evidence. Wisconsin, a Trump-appointed judge, held a hearing. The Trump campaign could present anything they wanted to that judge. And time and again, they didn't. So that's what I find, uh, to Jonah's point, actually, that the lie itself, the words themselves, the stated objectives are plenty here. You don't need to impute everything that happened afterwards. You just don't need to. It's not that you couldn't. Maybe you could. As David has said, I do think we'll learn more as days and weeks progress. Uh, And I think the next topic that we have to talk about very briefly before we move to the social media aspect of all this is what happens next. Uh, We're certainly, according to the FBI, not out of the woods yet. There's a lot of things still being planned. January 17th looks like a very specific date that uh, folks are planning for. And then, of course, Inauguration Day, January 20th. Um, You know, on the other hand, the National Guard is sleeping in the rotunda right now. And it reminded me so much of the the pictures and drawings that you've seen from the Civil War, where the military is being quartered in the Capitol. Uh, And it's terrifying. I mean, that's just disgusting to me that that's where things have come. I also think that that means they're far better prepared than they were. I don't think we'll just see a repeat of January 6th by any means. And the Daily Beast had some good reporting where a bunch of these right-wing groups now believe that this is all a trap being set up for them. Um, There's different versions of what the trap is. One version of the trap is it's just a trap to uh, have a mass arrest of Trump supporters. Okay, but the version that I found most interesting is this is a trap they want us to become violent and to discredit (laughs) our own movement. Yeah, yeah, and if that, it is a trap. It's not being set up by someone else. It's being set up by members of your own movement. But yes, if you do this and have an armed militia march on the 17th and 20th, I don't see how it's not going to turn violent. And yes, if it turns violent, that will very much undermine your movement. And so there's right-wing groups, like the really, really right-wing groups, sending out emails, don't show up, don't go, this is a trap. Um, Am I being naive to hope that, that we are... We were underprepared on January 6th and we're actually overprepared for January 17th. You know, I think that this actually goes back to something that we talked about during the BLM riots during the summer. And that is that overwhelming presence can often mean that you don't have to use overwhelming force. It's a power doctrine for domestic disturbances, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Just the presence, the massive presence of the National Guard means that any attempt to try to do anything is not is it just a suicidal act of futility. And so that overwhelming presence prevents the need for overwhelming force. And so what I would think, what I, I'm beginning to be less concerned, maybe I'm wildly optimistic, but I'm beginning to be less concerned about what's happening in the Capitol and more concerned about what's happening at the state houses. Um, because, you know, one of the things that is underappreciated about January 6th is it wasn't just the U.S., the, you, there wasn't just a presence, a, a angry protest movement in the nation's capital on January 6th. It was also in many other states. 
And so, um, and we have seen armed protesters, for example, shut down the Michigan legislature for a time uh, earlier in the year. So I'm, I'm concerned about what might happen elsewhere, but I'm beginning to feel better about the Capitol. Um, I still, my mind is just boggled when I look at that, those, those zoomed out images from January 6th of that incredibly thin blue line confronting this massive, seething, angry riot. They never had a chance. They never had a chance. And that, that is shocking. I also just highly recommend the Wall Street Journal's latest on what happened in the gallery as the mob was closing in and just how close it all came. That picture from inside the gallery where they've pushed the desk that the pages normally sit at and they've pushed it against the doors and you have guys standing sort of outside the view, holding their guns as members are under their desks. They were told to get their gas masks and hide there. And they're hearing the gunshots being fired at the speaker's chamber. I mean, it's, um, it's a chilling TikTok of that sort of three minute period as they're getting the last members evacuated from the gallery right as the protesters enter it. They think there's about 30 to 60 seconds in between those two things. Yeah, you, you can't read enough of, of those, actually, because I think it, it really is important for people to understand yeah. exactly what happened. There was a 39-minute video taken by one of the insurrectionists posted on YouTube. I believe uh, his name was Jaden X. And it, it captured you know most of the entire beginning of the of this effort and, um, and, and ended shortly after, um, Ashley Babbitt, the, the QAnon adherent was shot by Capitol police. But I would say I didn't have a real sense. I'd done some reporting on this. I talked to people who were in there. I, you know, followed this closely, but I didn't have a real sense of exactly what happened and, and, and how violent this was or could have gotten until I watched that video. And then to Sarah's point, I think watching the, the TikToks, particularly the ones that are augmented by video, these multimedia presentations, the New York Times did one that was excellent. The Washington Post has done one. The Wall Street Journals that she mentioned is really outstanding. There's a, a, a political science professor at the University of Illinois named Nicholas Grossman, who's written some pieces for the dispatch. And, and he sent a tweet a few hours ago uh, and it posed this question. How would America react if the Capitol attack killed 50 instead of five with right. Pence and Pelosi executed over live stream and Congress too shaken to finish the electoral vote certification that night? Because that's how we should be reacting now. And I think it's, a bit, you know, obviously very stark, but it's the right way to frame this. Also, can I, I mean, that's a very dramatic way of putting it and I agree with it entirely, but can we, um, can we, also, just, I mean, let me put it, I'll make a serious point and then a lighter point. The more serious point is this is one of the few events, I made this point somewhere else recently, but one of the few events I can, maybe the only event I can remember that got worse over time. Mm -hmm. Like on 9 11, the, we all thought, like, I remember because everyone was talking to each other. We thought 30,000 people were dead, right? We didn't, we thought there was going to be wave after wave and all that kind of stuff. And then there was a, quiet period afterwards. And it turned out, and I don't mean to be minimizing, but only less than 3000 people died. You know, when you saw those towers come down, you thought, Oh my God, there must be 30,000 people just in there alone. And 
And then the networks made this decision, which I actually disagreed with at the time, to stop showing footage of the people jumping to their deaths off the top of the building and all that. And there was this concerted effort to sort of minimize or tamp down the horror of all that. This is a different situation, and, and media classes will study it for all sorts of things, for all sorts of reasons for years. But the slow rollout of all of this video um, and the testimonials are actually making it clear how much worse it was than we thought it was on that day. And that's a different thing in, for politics and culture. The other thing I would say related to that, which is a little lighter point, can we just have a little gratitude for the rank stupidity of people who want to be terrorists? I mean, some of this reminds me of, remember the first uh, World Trade Center bombers? They caught them because the dude wanted a refund on the rider truck that they rented to blow up the World <laughs> Trade Center, right? You have all of these jackwads GoProing and selfieing themselves throughout their felonies. You know, I mean, most bank robbers don't stop in the middle of a bank robbery, lift up their ski mask and pose for a selfie in front of the big pile of money in the safe. But all of these guys did that. And it must be very satisfying uh, sort of, you know, um, finding all these acorns of social media for the FBI to be like, thank you for this Viking dude, you know, because otherwise we'd have a really hard time finding you. But instead, you did a five minute monologue while you were dropping a deuce in the hallway of Congress. And it makes it very easy to convict you. I mean, I appreciate that. I think it's funny. Oh, but. And one form of stupidity led to another. Like, we're against masking in a pandemic. <laughs> and so, therefore, we're going to show our faces yeah. to the whole world while we storm the Capitol as but an can act I, of Can I make a serious point off of, off of your lighter points? And I'm glad you made those lighter points because we, we, needed, we needed them. <laughs> There's a reason, I think, that they were willing to film themselves doing what they were doing. And it's because they believed that they were starting a revolution and mm -hmm. they yeah. thought they would be legends. And yeah. in the event that this succeeded, they wanted it recorded, they wanted it recorded for history. Right. That's they didn't think it was stunning. a bank robbery. They did not think it was a bank robbery. They thought that they were on the side of the angels and that it would be important to be able to, to point people back to the role that they played in this moment. And you had all of this talk of 1776, including from, from members of Congress, um, Lauren Boebert from Colorado recently elected tweeted today is 1776. This was a common theme among the She's people who go, stormed, the stormed the Capitol. Uh, they, that's what they thought they were doing and they wanted credit for what they were doing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, speaking of getting credit, social media has uh, largely deplatformed this movement. Twitter has said they've taken down 70,000 related accounts. Facebook has taken down every mention of Stop the Steal, any sort of organizing for the future. Almost all of them have stopped political advertising. 
uh, the president's been removed from every platform and just yesterday was removed from YouTube for a seven-day suspension, I believe. There are people who are cheering this on, you know, about damn time people. There are people who are saying this is a slippery slope and we won't like where this goes. This means anyone can be silenced for unpopular opinions. And then there's uh, people predominantly on the right who say that this is illegal and are suing over it or, um, you know, believe that this is proof that the law needs to change. David, I want you to walk us through those three buckets of people. Who has the best argument? Um, Okay, so there's... There's, this is so complicated. Let me try to, um, what, what's the line from Princess Bride? Um, and let me explain. No, it's too much. Let me sum up. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I would like to do just as a predicate matter is we have to be dealing with a particular set of facts. Okay. So w- there, there's a lot of talk about slippery slope, this slippery slope, that got it. Understand these social media companies have a lot of power. There are a lot of institutions in the United States who have a lot of power and they restrain the use of their power through moral norms, um, more so than legal barriers. And it's very important to maintain some of these moral norms. The market often helps maintain these norms as well because many companies don't want to alienate vast swaths of their customer base. And so... Yeah, if, if you begin to erode moral norms of generalized equal access to Twitter or Facebook or to banking services or to credit card services or to web cloud services, there's dangers there, okay? So then the question you have to ask yourself is, under these circumstances, are we eroding those moral norms? Under the facts that are presenting in the moment, are we eroding these moral norms. And I say no, and I say no because of the facts. And one of the values of lawsuits, and this is something we saw during this entire election contest, is that when you get to a lawsuit, you got to come forward with facts and evidence. And tweeting whataboutism and all of that crap doesn't fly anymore. And so you have to talk about facts. And a lot of people have pointed to Amazon Web Services as being sort of the chief offender here, the worst actor here, by cutting off access to Parlay. So Parlay very helpfully filed a lawsuit against Amazon Web Services. Now, there's a breach of contract issue that they've raised that the court will adjudicate. Uh, it looks to me, we'll see, well, looks to me like Amazon's in some pretty good pretty good ground, but Amazon in its responsive pleading raises some factual allegations that I wish people would pay attention to when they're talking about this social media issue. And that is that this was not something that came up immediately with Amazon reacting to political correctness uh, after January 6th. No, it turns out that Amazon for weeks had been working with Parlay because it was deeply concerned about um, and threats to incite violence. What were some of these threats? I'm not going to repeat them all because I don't want to give airtime to these threats. I mean, they're vicious, but here's the basic summary of them. And this is, this is from their, their, um, this is the opening paragraph of Amazon's response. This case is not about suppressing speech or stifling viewpoints. It's not about a conspiracy to restrain trade. Instead, this case is about Parlay's demonstrated unwillingness and this is really important, inability 
to remove from the servers of Amazon content that threatens the public safety, such as by inciting and planning the rape, torture, and assassination of named public officials and private citizens. Now, that other part about inability is really important here, y'all. Amazon came forward with evidence that Parlay was backlogged by 26,000 requests to take down information. It couldn't handle the volume of threats. It couldn't handle them. And so before you say this is political correctness, before you say this was some sort of snap decision, let's look at the facts. And the facts here are, are, are we breaking a moral norm or a norm restraining big tech when you've got a company like Parlay that is actually housing mass numbers of threats that it cannot even keep up with to take down? And so in that circumstance, I think, look, this is something we have to wake up and realize what we're dealing with here. This isn't a, a couple of mean tweets. You know, this isn't. This isn't, I don't like your view on, you know, gender identity issues and pronouns. This is a backlog of 26,000 complaints of content that was too bad for parlay that they couldn't even handle. And then you're saying that Amazon should have to host this? What? So this is where we are. And I totally get it. I totally, and I'll say it a million thousand times, banning Trump from Twitter was a hard call. But we have to remember that had Trump not been president of the United States, he would have been banned a long time ago. So he was enjoying a presidential privilege on that platform already, already enjoying a presidential privilege. And so that, that's where I am on this. We have to look at the facts of what's going on here. And the facts here bear no resemblance to, well, I don't like Ben Shapiro's view on gender identity, so I'm going to deplatform Ben Shapiro. No, that is not what was happening here. And we're not in that neighborhood. Jonah, as someone who was quoting Edmund Burke on Twitter yesterday, uh, it's like, it was a well, The day it was ended a in why, so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I wonder whether you might give us a bit of a philosophical exegesis on slippery slopes. Because to me, everything is a slippery slope. The only question is whether we as humans can set some barrier along the slope. But so I'm very unconvinced by the slippery slope argument, even though it seems to be everyone's go-to. Yeah. So um, in my very underrated second book, I actually have a long essay about slippery slope arguments. And I am very, I've changed my mind a little bit on slippery slope arguments, but I basically hate them um, because 90% of the time they allow people to argue what they want to argue about and use a lot of logical fallacies to do so rather than actually arguing the merits. You know, if we disallow this, then if, if we allow this, then, you know, people are going to be sleeping with horses, you know, and it's, it's that one of it. And, and then you get to argue about how it's bad to sleep with horses rather than, you know, cousin marriage or whatever the argument is. I don't know. So my point is, um, I mean, the way I look at this, first of all, for the most part, there are no slippery slopes. I mean, I, I understand that there are, sort of exceptions to this rule, but for politics, it's only a slippery slope if people say, uh, if we allow this, we have to allow all these other things, and then they don't fight any of the other things. But that's not how politics <laughs> works. People actually, if you concede this point, you're not necessarily automatically going to concede B, C, D, you know, all the way down the line. And um, 
you look at the things that we thought were slippery slopes for most of the 20th century, and a lot of them turned out to go the other way, whether it was, you know, like in 1974, everyone thought all respectable opinion for the most part was the Supreme Court is just going to continue to embrace this sort of idea of the living constitution. It's a slippery slope. If you allow this, you'll allow that. And turned out, no, that the fact that we were sliding in one direction activated people on the other side of the argument to actually organize and create things like the Federalist Society and blah, 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 blah. And you can do this with all sorts of issues. The way I look at this, though, is I tend to think that moral issues are scalable. That um, if I have a little book group and um, someone in the book group says, as, as one of these parlor quotes from the, the Amazon briefing says, after, we, after the firing squads are done with all of the politicians, we'll go after the teachers. That's, that's a direct quote, okay? If you say that in my book group, I shall kick you out of my book group. Unless you're joking, right? Unless we like, you know, but we know that these people aren't joking, right? And if you say it on my website, if you say it on the dispatch, Steve and I and the rest of us will kick you off because you can't say that on something that we're responsible for. And you can scale this principle up as far and as wide as you want. And the idea that at some point, as David was sort of suggesting, that simply because Amazon is such a large scale operation, it therefore has to tolerate essentially criminal speech, dangerous criminal speech, because if it doesn't, there'll be a slippery slope and we won't allow people to say, um, uh, I think Nixon shouldn't have resigned. I mean, I just don't think it works that way. That's, that's, that, it's, it, it's, a, it's not a slippery slope. It's a very steep hill going up that your people are trying to argue is actually down and slippery. And that's, that's my problem with this, is that this is a simple moral question. Do I have to endorse and provide a platform for truly evil speech as a private citizen or a private company? And the answer, regardless of my size, is of course not. So it's sort of a simple question for me. Steve? I mean, yeah. I, I, um, well, I feel like I take your point, your philosophical point, that there are no such things as, as slippery slopes. And, and I share your um, disdain for the logical fallacies that sometimes result from people trying to use this, this slippery slope um, argument. But boy, it feels to me like we're living at the bottom of a really slippery slope um, right now over the past four years with everything that's happened over the past four years. I mean, there have been sort of been one. We, we made arguments at the, at the beginning of this in, in different at the beginning of, of kind of the Trump era, worrying that that there was a slippery slope. This is a slippery slope to that. This is a slippery slope to that. And now I think, you know, we're living the results of that. So I, I take your philosophical point and I tend to agree with it. But no, I agree with you. But I mean, colored my point by, is, it's is colored reason, by my reality. The reason why we are where we are isn't necessarily because the slope is slippery. It's that because people's uh, people were cowardly and lacked the courage to, you know, people have human agency and it's, they're the ones who made it yes. slippery. It is not some metaphysical it's external not thing about inevitable. the nature of reality. Right. Yeah. It's it's right. not some like weak hallmark card version of Marxist determinism. It is just simply that people pandered to audiences 
and pandered to voters yeah. and pandered to whatever. And this is where you get, that's not slippery. That's a bunch of people pushing the boulder down the hill. Well, David, I think I know what we're going to talk about tomorrow on advisory opinions. We've got a lot of law to jump into when it comes to the social media platforms and free speech and private corporations and all sorts of things. Uh, I think we should leave it there. But wait, 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 wait. Uh, we did not get to Sarah on the social media issue. You know, it seems really simple to me. You cannot walk into a Walmart and scream any of these things or Walmart kicks you out. To Jonah's point, um, to me, it's not that the scale is different, that they're so much bigger. I think the issue is that they held themselves out to be public squares. They weren't. They were never public squares. They were always a Walmart, but they told people, come to our Walmart, it's a public square. And here's our soapbox. We built one just for you. Please come stand on it and say whatever you like. We support free speech because this is a public square that we've built for you. And now they're saying, well, but you always knew it was a Walmart. I mean, it was always privately owned. This was never a public square. Um, they are right now. This is the correct argument is that they are, they built a soapbox that was a private soapbox within the Walmart and they always had the right to kick people out of it. I think that the mistake that they made was for the last 10 years telling people that it was a public square. Legal question. Yeah. Point of information. Uh, in a public square, whatever that constitutes of the legal definition of a public square, I don't know what, what one is, a public park, you know, yeah. a plaza. A literal soapbox, um, soapbox in a okay. public park is a limited public forum. Are you allowed in a public square to call for organizing to murder hundreds of politicians? I mean, can the police say, hey, dude, you can't, I know this is like a Hyde Park free speech zone and we like to get to say what we want to say, but you can't actually talk about raping and murdering people and calling for people to get to, to stock up on supplies to rape and murdering people. Can you well, tell Jenna, people to stop doing that? Look, to some extent, you can do that. This mm -hmm. is the Brandenburg test. This is the incitement test, but in a true public forum soapbox, um, yes, you can sit up there and talk about the uh, moral benefits of a society in which people can be forced to have sex against their consent. Absolutely. And then you can talk about why we shouldn't have outlawed murder. Now, of course, you cannot make threats against people, like all the things that apply to, to um, speech that is unlawful. But like, yes, that you could not do anything about a true public soapbox if someone went up and said a lot of the things that are on there, not all of but them. But not all of them. them. Were, not right. all but of not them. all of them. Yep. Not yeah. all of them. Um, I mean, there's actually a Supreme Court case involving someone who said during the Johnson era, if I'm drafted, first thing when I do when I get a rifle is I'm going to shoot Johnson. Um, and that was constitutionally protected speech. Um, so, so yeah, Sarah, Sarah's right about that. But not all of this. Not, not all, all of it. This. And... There's also, so I've shifted, by the way, for the lawyers who are listening, sort of in a cute way. I, I started by talking about it being a limited public forum. And then I went to answer Jonah's question. I made it a pure public forum. Uh, in a limited public forum, think more like a school that lets uh, other groups use it after school's over each day, Jonah. The school mm. can also turn down folks from using it as long as they're not turning them down for a protected you know, reason, basically. Um, but more on this on advisory opinions, of course. But that's my general take on the social media stuff is that <laughs> 
what they're doing now, uh, people are hemming and hawing about. And that's actually on the social media platforms because this should have been their policy all along. And with that, our next advisor, <laughs> our next dispatch podcast, uh, I always say advisory opinions because obviously it's the flagship, uh, will be <laughs> will be on inauguration day. And I expect you boys to bring your A-games, your fastballs, every sports metaphor that I don't probably fully even understand the meaning of. I'm going to bring my curling broom. Take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 